Welcome to Conversations on Cancer. My name is Faith Fuller, and I'm one of the founders of CRR Global, along with Marita Frijan. The following is a series of podcasts with different cancer survivors about creating right relationship with a life-threatening illness. We want to acknowledge right off the bat that this topic can naturally bring up a wide variety of feelings for all of us. For this reason, we want to give a trigger warning about the content of these podcasts before you continue. We're going to be presenting interviews with cancer survivors or their caretakers. And each podcast is a very personal story about one journey with a life-threatening illness. Everyone's journey is different and the speaker's experience may be very dissimilar from any health journey of your own. In the spirit of deep democracy, please honor the speaker's experience and also honor your own. Every voice is one voice of the system. Honor what right relationship with illness means to you. Medical disclaimer. These podcasts are meant to share the personal stories of cancer survivors. The stories are not intended to provide medical advice of any kind. Any questions regarding a user's personal medical condition or their medical care should be directed to their medical care physician. Thank you. In this episode, I'm talking with Marita Fridchon and Daphne Taylor about what right relationship means when one is a caregiver. Marita Fridchon is CEO and co-founder of CRR Global and partner of Faith Fuller, who was diagnosed with stage four uterine cancer in September 2021. She is currently in remission. Daphne Taylor is ORSC faculty and was front of the room and certification faculty over a period of 13 years and is now part of the team producing CRR Global's new systemic supervision program. Her husband, Paul, was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer in 2015 and given 12 to 18 months to live. They had been married for 34 years and had a strong, loving relationship and were just emerging from the years of child rearing to planning exciting adventures ahead. Paul lived for 18 months and died in a hospice just after his 60th birthday in 2017. My name is Katie Churchman and you're listening to Conversations on Cancer. Daphne, Marita, welcome to Conversations on Cancer, this special mini-series that Faith has devised as part of Relationship Matters. Thank you, Katie. It's always a pleasure to sit with you and Daphne to share the table with you. And this one is a different honour and privilege. Yeah, and thank you, Katie. You know, it's such an important topic and it feels like so much honouring in having this conversation and to be able to talk about things that often people find difficult to talk about. So thank you. Thank you both. And I mentioned this is Faith's special podcast and yet she's not going to be here for this episode. And yet, as we know, she will be very present in this conversation, as will Paul, your partner, Daphne. Yeah, and that's part of the honouring. You know, they are the reason we're here and having this conversation. So um, it, it feels really special that we can actually talk about it and bring to life some of the things that, you know, people are not always aware of what we deal with. 
I also think uh, previously in the conversation before, just before we started talking, Katie, you also talked about that Faith will be a ghost here because, you know, she initiated this when the universe initiated something with her called cancer, and that impacted all of us. And so the whole term of ghost is something that I want to revere in this situation because it really is that presence of somebody that has been important so important. And in essence, they're still with us, even mm. when they're gone. And even when she's not here on this call right now, in essence, you bet your last dollar, she's right on my shoulder. She's here. Yeah, I almost sort of have that sense of, oh, thank goodness, you know, I've been wanting you to talk about this for such a long time. And, you know, now you've found a place to have your voice. So, you know, thank you to Faith for being such an initiator of this. That's so interesting, Daphne. And, you know, I want to also honor the difference in our journey as we sit in this now, in this moment, where your journey with Paul as caregiver is completed. Yeah. And you had a wonderful story in which that I believe to you about becoming his wife again. Yeah. Um, and mine is not completed. So we've just had good news. And there's a next you know, layer of the journey that will find its new start. But I just am aware that we're sitting in different chairs. And I so appreciate sitting with you in the chair of having completed that journey. Yeah, thank you, Marita. I mean, that story was such a precious one to me, because I had pretty much got to the end of my tether when I rang the um, Macmillan Cancer Care Nurse. And she did say to me, well, I know it must be bad because you never ring me. (laughs) And she said, right, we need to get Paul into the hospice. Um, She said, then you can go back to being his wife and you don't need to be a caregiver anymore. And that was such an emotional and precious thing because I sort of forgotten the role of wife had been left behind. And that is part of the shift when you become a caregiver. You know, there's so many different layers, as you alluded to, Marita, the shifts and changes, you know, with treatment, with you know, testing, with, you know, changing um, circumstances, it's a constantly moving thing to be dealing with. So it's it's never still. That sentence, it's never still, touches me as well, because for me, and I don't know what that meant for you, Daphne, but for me, there is something about, on some level, on a constant alert. Mm, yes. Because you're not sure. And it's not because... I think that we also had a long conversation between Faith and myself about the difference between caretaker and caregiver. It's not about taking over as in caretaker. There are aspects of that that shows up sometimes, but it is from that caregiver perspective, it is being aware and on the lookout because what happens next is not predictable. I think that's part of the stress. And and what you're talking about there, Marita, is the the fundamental change in the relationship with the person that you're the caregiver for. So if it's a spouse or or a life partner, that is a changed relationship. It's no longer the same relationship. I'm curious because I know your journey is very different as well, Daphne. And you know Faith better than I knew Paul. But what I knew of him was he was an amazing man. Yeah. And I'm curious about how the journey was slightly different because one of the things that I'm aware of is that in the third entity that is Faith and Marita, in the profiles, Faith is a contributor. She contributes. That's her why, is to contribute. And when disease like cancer hits, it pauses the contributor. Yes. And then there's something that 
starts and the dynamic between us that becomes part of that 69% perpetual issue of this part of the journey is how do I give care without faith, the contributor feeling like she's not worth anything. It, is, it just, it's a dynamic that happens there. That is something that we often talked about and it was easier in the first five or six day post chemo because there really was a kind of response and reaction to chemo that takes some of that away because there really is no ability. But then there's a catch up after that as well. See, I'm okay. I can do. So you can see how it plays out differently. And I'm talking about a different phase and stage from where you are. But I'm curious about how some of that played with you. Well, a very similar experience, Marita, because Paul was a provider. You know, that's what he did in our family. He was, you know, very traditional male provider. And his disease was brain cancer. And so this is the challenge of being the caregiver. How much did I allow him to carry on providing? And I quickly realized that as much as possible, I would let him do it. But we yes. had some hilarious situations where I can laugh about them now, but he was sort of living his bucket list life. So he would be booking tickets online to, you know, Bruce Springsteen concerts, the Rugby World Cup, everything. <laughs> and we went to see Rod Stewart at a, an arena. He booked the tickets, he booked a dinner, He'd organized it all and all I had to do was drive. But when we got there, we walked in and he booked some very expensive seats and they said, oh, you've missed the meal. Uh, and I go, what meal? Um, you know, because he, I'd let him book it and he'd forgotten. <laughs> I didn't check the tickets. So it created some hilarity, but in some ways I still allowed him yes. to do as much as he could. But the, you know, we turned up once to a restaurant booking in London and they didn't have the booking. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, he told me he'd booked it. <laughs> And I'm trying not to say, but he's got brain cancer, you know, because it's sort of that's yeah. one of the things that you realize, well, it's just what's happening and we roll with it. That's fascinating because you're talking about bucket lists. I think that there is nothing like the threat of death or cancer that scores up bucket lists because we have this, we have a similar situation with faith as well. It's the bucket list of all the things that haven't happened and we haven't done. <laughs> and then that whole thing with sometimes I can't do anything because I'm still full-time engaged in the company and she's not, yeah. it, you know, you could see how it just changes the relationship dynamics. Yes enormously. And that, I think, is one of the most challenging parts of the caregiver role in my experience, yeah. is how to meet, we're all terminal, but how to meet the dying partner where they are. Yes. And it's it's an unknown and it can change from day to day. Yes. And that could be because of the treatment they're having or the type of disease that they've got or just their emotional state and how they're dealing with it. So I think that is one of the really challenging things is, you know, today it's this and tomorrow it's not this. It's something else. Yes. And when you've sort of been in a settled relationship with someone for quite some time, you know, it just has its rituals and its norm and the way it flows. And suddenly that's sort of all gone, really. And there might be glimpses of it. So it's quite unsettling, I would say. It sort of sometimes feels like, you know, the rug's been pulled from under your feet. You're not quite sure where you are. I'm sure the rug and then the floor beneath the rug, right, feels like it's gone. And I'm just starting to realise that it's 
the caregiver role isn't just a functional role in terms of the outer role. It's very much an emotional role too. And it seems like cancer snatches so many other roles of who you were and how you feel as a person. Those parts are gone suddenly. I think that's a really good observation that both are pulling the rug out, but the floor underneath is not quite there either. And then the roles that got changed. Yes. It was such an essence piece that I realized that there was something that you said that I really wanted to respond to. And now I can't remember what it was. That's part of what happens. Yes. You know, I started to think about some of the roles that shift and, you know, one minute uh, you're allowing Paul to be the provider, as we said, you know, let them be contributor, provide that that's what they, it's important to them to have as much of that. The next minute I'm protector because he was a bit frail and we'd walk down the street and he had a walking stick and people would knock him over. And so suddenly I have to kind of muscle up and be protector, which was not a natural part of our relationship. He was always the protector of me. So the shifting in roles and the ad- adapting. And one thing I did want to say is, is, is maybe a slight shift in topic, but it's, it's just come to me is that there is something about the acceptance of the diagnosis. So the relationship with the diagnosis. And in my situation, Paul was sort of in denial most of his illness, or at least he thought he could beat it and he was determined. So for me, I had already uh, lost a sister from brain cancer. So I pretty much knew what the um, outcome was likely to be. And I knew medicine hadn't changed that much. So I found it really difficult to live with his version of the diagnosis because I had a different version of it. And it caused a lot of tension between us. That's so interesting, Daphne, because I think that's a critical observation is how do you, there is, there is rank. What we talk about is rank is, you know, power in being caregiver, but there's also rank and power in being the terminally ill partner. Because and it's it's when is it that we allow the protector in us as because I have a very strong protector. I call it my mama lioness. When do I allow my mama lioness to come out and protect? And when do I calm her down and take a step back and allow full execution of what faith wants to do or work with it or come to terms with it? Uh, because the coming to terms with a diagnosis, it really is a third entity journey. And we cannot be at the same, we're not at the same places, can't expect to be. No. And so what you just spoke about, Marita, to me, sort of encapsulates the the role of the caregiver or the relationship with being a caregiver. It's shifting sands. It's trying to navigate it with the third entity and, and feeling your third entity now feels completely different. Yes. And navigating these uh, roles that are suddenly being you know, do I bring this role up? Do I hold it back and allow that? So it's like this constantly moving thing that you're navigating almost minute by minute some days. I think that's the fatigue. We haven't talked about fatigue of caregivers. And I think that there is a deep fatigue that is this piece that is the constantly navigating something. What is here now? Because I cannot anticipate that it will be the same in the next moment. And how to manage that in me, myself, so that I don't overdo that and drive both of us crazy, you know, just exhaust myself to a place that I can't be of no help. Mm. That's not an easy call. It really isn't. And it sort of brings me to the place of, you know, how your relationship, our relationships with being caregivers, how does that allow or encapsulate allowing people to take care of us? 
because in some ways there almost isn't space. Like you say, you're running a business and you have a role of caregiver. You know, where do you find the space to say, let someone take care of me or even the bandwidth for it? Because there's such fatigue that unless people are really skilled at just showing up with something and, you know, quietly taking care of something for you as the caregiver, it's actually becomes too much to kind of say, I need help. I need help here. I'm too tired. That's an that's a, such an important piece. And I don't know how often people talk about that because I think that something that you just said, the most valuable friends or colleagues or whoever they are, are the ones who no, don't necessarily call to have a conversation, but who shows up with something. Yes. We have an amazing neighbor who every now and again, she would just say, we are we are ordering uh, takeout from blah blah blah, and remember that you both like this and this, and so just expect something will show up at your door, Aww. or I will bring it across. Or it's that kind of thing. It's that forward thinking in terms of what is needed. Yeah, and that I don't. I, I'm aware of how often we take our friends and neighbors for granted, but in a moment of these experiences how precious that is and how much privilege that is to accept an experience. Yeah, so it's almost like there's another role of caregiver of caregivers, you know. I notice that I get shy when I hear that it's like, yeah, absolutely, please. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if there's something also about the person with the, the illness being in the spotlight. I've not thought much about the caregiver role, if I'm completely honest. And actually, it's a whole... It's a whole role switch for you. And I wonder, and this might be the wrong question, so apologies if it's unskillful, but did you feel like you lost a part of yourself during that that time, either of you? I, I certainly did. And it, and it took a long time for me to find myself again afterwards. And part of that was because of the, the grief process uh, that I was in. But I had very little sense of myself because so much of it was about doing or, you know, protecting. I was keeping certain people away. Um, you know, I was listening to my husband tell his mother on the phone that he was absolutely fine when we just met the consultant who said his tumours had grown. And that's like, ah, oh, you know, what? <laughs> giving family medical updates so that there's just not a lot of space for yourself. Mm. And, and in, you know, for a while, I certainly carried on doing some work because that was the place that I knew me. Okay. Um, it's very grounding and, you know, to know yourself. But there came a point ultimately where I, I wasn't able to carry on doing that. I needed to give more time to the caregiver role. How long, Daphne, were you in that role? 18 months, really. So he had 18 months and he was quite well at the beginning. Um, but, you know, then <laughs> he, would, he would have a lot of seizures in the you know in the middle of the James Bond film and uh, five minutes from the end when <laughs> all the lights go on and then they call an ambulance because then lots of people are trying to kind of say oh I think he's had a stroke and I'm so that's part of the protector role you know but he's got brain tumors oh no I think he's got the sign you know and I was fighting for him and then they wanted him taken to a, a more remote hospital and I knew they didn't have a neurology ward there so that sort of brought up even quite early on I had to suddenly do the fighting bit when he wasn't well but then I had to step back very quickly because suddenly he'd be well he'd be doing work calls and you know booking another concert somewhere <laughs> so it's that sort of navigation of one day to the next that we mentioned earlier wow that's so powerful that um and it's it really you could also see how the 
caregivers' journeys are so different depending on the diagnosis and where you are in that journey. Yes. So when, when there is a, a little bit of what your journey, as you describe it, Daphne, there was in the beginning of phase diagnosis that it looked a little bit like that. And then other research and different pieces started showing up. And we are now sitting in a situation that is known as NED, no evidence of disease. And now it's a different part of the caregiver's journey is, will it come back? When will it come back? Where will it come back? And how do I not allow any of that to now take hostage of something which can be and is a return to something that is a little bit more like what we had and deeply, deeply appreciating that and enjoying it while we have it. Yes. So it's, it's a very different journey depending on diagnosis and for everybody sitting in these chairs. Uh, I think that's really key because, you know, there's so many different diseases out there. But I think the other thing, Marita, is that it depends on your relationship with the person as well. Mm. You know, not, not all of us will have the same relationship, however long you've been with that person. And so it, it will evoke different things in us when they, when they have a life-threatening illness. Yes. Well, and again, I think the piece that you're talking about is how each one of us have our own history with death yeah. and with what it means. And so it's like the myriad of internal selves of me, the caregiver, is meeting up with the myriad of internal selves of the patient or you know my partner. And that by itself is chaotic. So and, and that is the place where how do I ensure that I have the support or the space in which I can work that stuff. And at some point you don't have it because it's too critical. Yeah. But I think for anybody that sits and think it's not, and we all have a version of it's not going to have ever happen to me. It's going to happen to all of us when we are either side of the coin, it's going to happen. Yes. And there's something about planning. I know from my years as medical social worker, and I think that it's my history with death and family that had me become a medical social worker that work at terminal wards for five, six years, is that piece about how do you prepare? How do you make sure that by the time that you sit in that, there is enough support and there's enough that's already completed that you not, don't have to do in crisis? Yes. It's a whole other yeah. piece. I think what you reminded me as you were speaking there, Marita, was also the um, sort of concern of family and friends and people around and how you navigate the multiple channels of people inquiring and wanting to be there, that requires another role from the caregiver is like navigating and managing the, the, the care that people want to throw to the, the, the ill person. Yes. And now there are so many channels that these messages arrive in. I know. I know it's it's a kind of a whole other job in itself. And, you know, working out that you can't answer every single message that um, sometimes I think one of the things I worked out is sometimes you're actually trying to comfort people who've been triggered themselves by the diagnosis or illness. And it's triggered, like you said, some history of their relationship with death. And there is a, a limit, well, there was certainly a limit to my capacity to deal with other people's triggering and trauma arising. And I began to lose compassion a little bit uh, because of the fatigue. Sure. You're talking about something that I don't think any of us talk for enough. And that is how to, that part of caregiver that is 
the navigating other people's response and the impact of the news and the information on other people that now don't want to go to the patient, but comes to you. Uh, and that's a whole, and that is a place where caregiver becomes caregiver also to other people. Yes. And sometimes that feels a little bit more like the caretaker role rather than the caregiver role. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder about this this caregiver of the caregivers. And Daphne, I wonder if you could talk more about, I remember us talking offline, you said some friends um, changed during the time because they weren't um, the same with you during that. So if it's all right. Yeah, it's quite amazing, remarkable indeed, what a life-threatening illness can throw up in other people. And I hadn't expected that. So some people are very uncomfortable with it. Some people were so uncomfortable that they sort of disappeared, um, which surprised me. And some people just found the perfect place to do what your neighbours do, just showed up with something quietly, effortlessly and appeared. But there were other people that perhaps thought I was too negative or, you know, I was quite happy to talk about death. For me, it was a given. And as Marita said, we're all going there. So it was just coming sooner. And in fact, um, you know, Paul um, had planned all his own funeral. You know, he, he disappeared off one day. I thought, where's he been? I had him on a tracker because that was a really good way of allowing him to go off and be free. But if he didn't reappear for a couple of hours and he didn't, so I was tracking him on a computer. <laughs> like, what's he been doing at the church? Oh, I've just been chatting to the vicar and organised my whole funeral. Like, oh, very good. That's wonderful. So I could have that sort of conversation with some people, but other people would like talk around the subject and, you know, oh, how are you? Now, how are you really? And if I said, look, I'm absolutely terrible. I'm exhausted. I'm fatigued. I don't know whether I'm coming or going. They didn't know what to say. They, they, it wasn't the answer they wanted. They wanted me to say, oh, yes, I'm managing fine. Thank you. And I'm like, no, I'm not actually. I'm not managing fine. And, and, you know, one of the people that I had the best conversations with was Faith. You know, Faith just showed up for me yes. and said, let's talk about death, dying, illness, whatever you want to talk about. And that hour I had with Faith every now and then was just, well, regularly, was so precious because that was a real conversation. I so, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I do think that particularly in our Western worlds, it's almost like we have a God-like complex that we're not going to die or something. And that tender conversation that is about sitting in the consideration of my own finiteness and our finiteness together is a very different conversation when you sit with a diagnosis and you sit with a final the awareness of the reality of the final life stage journey. And I think, Marita, one of the things, I mean, it can sound a little petty when I say it, but I got fed up of hearing about people's cats or mothers that were dying. You know, it's, it's like there is no comparison. I'm not measuring people, but it doesn't help me to know that your cats just died. You know, it doesn't make me feel any better, thank you. And I realised that it was people's sort of ineffective ways of trying to show some empathy with me. But at the time, I didn't feel that because, again, the fatigue and the exhaustion means you've got no bandwidth, or at least I didn't. So I would actually get really grumpy and just like, you know, do they think I want to know about their mother dying? She's 90, you know. If I'd had less tiredness, I would have been able to understand. And certainly, in retrospect, I understand what their intention was. But it was hard for me to hear that. I felt felt as if it, it wasn't really meeting me where I was. 
You know, I think that one of the things that I so agree with you there is for anybody else that's listening also and are on this journey, it's okay to be grumpy. It's okay to be fatigued. And just pick the people and the places where you can do that. Because I think that one of the th- one of the things that I would say to my team or to Faith, and I had to be careful because I couldn't do it during the time that she's on chemo and stuff. But there are times that I could say, I'm not fit for human consumption. I'm going to go out and I take the dog with me and take the dog and just get out. Because if I, I'm not fit for human consumption and if I stay, it will become about Faith or the colleague that I'm talking to or whatever. So it's like, it's that place of, I'll never forget Kubler-Ross in a session that I was in with, uh, we were training on the stages of grief. And somebody talked to her and asked, but said one of the things that's so difficult for her is that the patient, the family, how often people are screaming at God and that's just not okay. And Kubler-Ross looking at the person and say, let them scream. God can take it. It's us that can't. Yeah. Also that permission, allow yourself to scream. God can mm-hmm. take it. If they can't, well, that's there. It's just that place where authenticity is and know what I can do and what I can't do. Yeah. And I think what we're sort of saying is that managing other people is an extra layer that really you don't have, mostly you don't have the capacity to deal with. And part of that is the culture that many of us have, have grown up in and the, the way our Western culture has um, encouraged us to sort of sanitize death and uh, grief and, you know, terminal illness and all of that. So it becomes deeply uncomfortable for people and and we're not educated in having the conversations. I mean, it's wonderful to know that there's things like death cafes, death doulas, it's sort of becoming a little bit more present in the conversation, but yes. I think much more is needed and yes. wonderful that, you know, we're able to talk like this now. I think one of the other things to keep on talking about friends, and I don't know what your experience was, but one of the things that I'm aware of is that with Faith and myself, we have such a strong third entity out in the world. And for me, sometimes in my own puniness, I'm sitting as the caregiver with something where it's like, so if I yell at people who love the both of us, and now I feels like I unfriend them, and faith is gone, will I then be totally alone? So it's that, that place also where as a if you think of yourself as a survivor, and who knows, I may not be a survivor because a car can hit me down the street. But it's that place of your own self-care is what is it that I protect so that I can stay relatively whole post this? And what is it? That, it's just, it's, and it, even as I, if I say it, and as I say it now, it feels like a selfish statement. But there is a place where I'm in touch with my own mortality. Yes. And sitting in the same awareness with the person close to you, my partner, doesn't take my awareness of my own mortality away. It makes it real. And those are difficult places to be in. It's been one of my tough places, sitting as quote-unquote survivor or caregiver, whatever the role is. Yes. It really brings it starkly into your awareness. Yes. Is your own mortality when you're watching someone else having treatment and and life-threatening illness. And, you know, however it turns out, that has come present into you. And it's, you know, then it's another thing that we have to navigate, deal with, work out. And I remember for a while, I would sort of walk around the house going, oh, well, you know, when I'm dead, someone will need to sort all this house out. So I better start doing it now. And I was like, hang on a minute. (laughs) But I do have moments like that. Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I just realised how it can be quite isolating thinking about your yes. land and how this, this cancer bomb comes in and obliterates so much of normality. But then people not even willing to step in, even if they have no sense of really what it's like, they're not even willing to try. I think that's what struck me from what particularly Daphne was saying. Is isolating the right word? Uh, very much so, Katie, because it's not within a lot of people's experience. You know, a lot of people haven't had the experience. And so they don't really know how to be with it. And one of the memories I have is Paul's family, who I've always loved dearly, but they were actually frightened of his disease. You know, it, it did change his personality. And that was difficult because I was ultimately living with someone who wasn't the same person yes. that, that I'd married and, and knew so well. But they would come and visit and when he was in the hospice, and um, I thought they'd come to help me out, you know, give me a break because I was spending 12 hour days at the hospice and not really having time to do anything else. And they wouldn't go on their own. And I said, oh, will you go and visit him? And I was thinking, uh, and they hadn't come for that. And they would not go and visit him on their own. And even sitting in the room, his brother and his sister and his mother were so uncomfortable. They just talked at him the whole time. And I, I was like, oh, gosh, that was, it was shocking to me at the time. But of course, I'd probably, well, I sat with my sister dying of brain cancer. So I had a different experience to them. And of course, it was deeply uncomfortable for them, but it, it was shocking because we hadn't discussed what they were coming for. You know, I thought they'd come to see him and, and made an assumption that I would get a break from it. And so when we're talking about caregivers of caregivers, it's like, don't assume <laughs> that the mm. people are comfortable and know what to do because often, oftentimes they don't. One of the things that you make me think of is family is, can be a challenge. And I think one of the things that happens while we are in the caregiving situation as well, is part of the fatigue is the rehearsing. Rehearsing what to anticipate when so-and-so comes. Yes. Rehearsing what to anticipate when that treatment is happening. Yes. Because the week after chemo, it's like a little bit like you said, it's not the same person. So there's a, and rehearsing is a powerful, we all rehearse all the time. It's a powerful piece, but it can also be fatiguing because there's a planning that needs to come from that. That if you don't do it, then you, you know, what you just described is some of that. I had, I'd rehearsed one way and then it shows up completely differently. And now it's even more fatiguing. Yes. Uh, and, and all that rehearsal and, you know, and each piece that you're rehearsing is another unknown and you're trying to navigate it. Yes. One of the things that just struck me is we both be, are in relationships and I, I feel I'm still in relationship with Paul in some ways that are very, very strong. They've got a very strong third entity. And I'm also aware that, you know, for some people, they might be sort of in the middle of a breakup or, you know, in, in a, a very difficult relationship. And then one partner gets a life-threatening illness and navigating that. I mean, it's not something I haven't experienced of but that's a whole other relationship yes. with someone and some people you know will look after an ex-husband who, who developed a, a life-threatening illness and some people are like I need to be out of here I can't do this so that caregiving role could be the thing that tips them over the edge. That's so interesting because I do think that's a that's a piece that happens more often than we think because very often the dynamic is not present to the outside world and somebody will be in that situation. And it just makes me think of how I hate, this is when I want to scream at the universe because I hate insight like this, uh, where even in all of this, 
I, we still have privilege because we could stay and are staying with somebody that is the beloved and that will remain the beloved during and after. Yes. That's a different caregiver journey yeah. from that has a different privilege uh, that I'm grateful for. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'm aware, Daphne, Katie knows this and you know some of this as well. Uh, Guido is a little bit, you may not hear him because he's further away, but he's snoring. And I know that both you and I speak dog. I'm curious about, because I also know how present your dog was for you. And I'm curious about the impact and how you experience. It's so funny you should ask that, Marita, because um, my dog and I had an interview at the hospice where Paul died a couple of weeks ago to become their therapy dog. Oh, and oh wow. <laughs> brilliant that's awesome yeah so he was just a one-year-old golden retriever when Paul went into the hospice and was allowed in the room and would just curl up I would put a mat down and he just knew that he had to lie down and be quiet and so it was just really amazing for me I mean it was comfort for me but also occasionally he would have his paws on the bed and Paul would stroke him and he would just stay still for half an hour without moving and I was absolutely amazed but it was sort of a wonderful support for me so he was in that hospice for 35 days every day for up to 12 hours and I would just have to take him out you know for a quick break every now and then so when we went back for our interview (laughs) last week (laughs) he trotted in like oh I know which room I'm going to uh, which wasn't where we were going off oh that must have been so touching as well oh that must have been a whole other memory experience it was and he sort of conducted the interview himself pretty much and got (laughs) us the job so there we go (laughs) but you know the other thing I should say um Marita there were times when we had to you know go for emergency treatment at a hospital and didn't know how long Paul would be in I would just have to drop the dog with anybody you know and I'd, I'd have a couple of friends and I'd ring them up and say I- I'm driving to so-and-so can I drop the dog off and you know that was so important to me very important for that support of me as the caregiver that's great I have the same with our next door neighbor as well and it, just talking about hospitals makes me also think of something else the caregiver role is also different during and post-covid because I could not go into any of Faith's chemo sessions with her. I couldn't go into any of her oncology conversations with her. I can't. That has been one of the most difficult parts for me, is that I couldn't be there. I couldn't be part of hearing the news. I couldn't be part of navigating what's going on. That's just, that suddenly has me emotional, but that's, oh, that's, that's huge during these times. That is so hard. So hard because those are the moments when you're having the conversation yes. about something when actually the, the person may or may not be taking it all in. So in some ways I saw it as a crucial caregiver's role that I was sitting, taking notes and listening and you weren't able to do that. That is so hard. No. And I know so many people who, you know, everybody, um, it's a little bit easier now, but now we're also in a situation where uh, because of immunocompromised, you have to continue to be extra careful post, even now with, you know, mask band-aids banned and things like it has, all of these have impact on the role of caregiver. Yeah. And that's one of those places where I will never forget one evening we were going to celebrate, I think Faith insisted we celebrate my birthday. We said, okay, there was a place that we thought we could go to, but because of what is happening with her, 
I, it just, it was the worst birthday celebration ever because while you're sitting at the table, you take your mask off to eat. And I was like, let's just get out of here because it's, you know, that's where the mama lioness comes in again and goes, no, get the F out of Mm -hmm. here. So there's a whole other piece in the presence of a COVID streak that's going to be with us for a while. Oh, that Mm -hmm. adds such a layer of difficulty, Marisa. My heart goes out to you, to both of you, because Faith would want you there by her side. And then just the awareness of the environment, you know, wherever you are, you might be trying to do a few bucket list things, and then you've got to kind of be aware of the environment. That's right. That's rehearsal again. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I can hear Guido snoring. That's right. Tell me how he's been part of your third entity through this. Well, the same. He's my tactile, uh, you know, I want to say hand on my back, but because when I have my hand on his back, it's like he's having his paw on my back. So he's, you know, it's his that. It's also fascinating to watch how, you know, we've got a special sheet over our bed because Guido will want to be on the bed and how he will jump up and he will insist on make it virtually impossible for Faith to find, you know, a, a straightened out position because he goes and and he insists he's going to go and curl up with her. And then I go, what am I, chopped liver? He just looks at me. <laughs> So it's that whole piece as well. And the same with couches. It's like <laughs> he would insist to go where faith is. And she, desi- she denies it. She says, no, he just thinks I'm going to take him for a walk. It's like, nope, there's a whole different different way in which he knows. And yes. he goes and calls up. Yes. And it, it is very comforting, you know, because the animals do. They're so, so sensitive and they do yeah. know that something's different. Yeah. 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 They're so intuitive, aren't they? they? They read the emotional field and lean into it in a way that often humans can't they do yes amazing there's a lot here there is a lot there is so much yeah and i guess there's no one answer when we talk about what it means to be what right relationship means as a caregiver but i wonder if you both have advice to someone who's sort of navigating this in whatever stage they're in what advice you'd maybe offer out from where you sit well i think you use the word navigate katie and i think it is a sort of over and over navigating new things new experiences and probably I think the thing that would be most helpful is the tiredness and fatigue makes the navigating harder so any way that you can find to you know just have some hands on your back some of those people you know this does have to be your sort of sanctuary of the few people who will just show up and deliver something without fuss, without words, without need for a response. Uh, And actually, it reminds me, I had one friend who would send me messages, but she finished them with NNTR, which meant no need to reply. That was just perfect. So that would perhaps be my advice. If you want to offer help to a caregiver, send whatever you want, but no need to reply. I think for me, the thing that shows up is like it or not, one of us, if you are in a relationship, is going to be the caregiver, unless we're lucky enough to go together in some unexpected way. I think that the conversation with one another about what is it that when I am the one that is on my way out, what is it that I want and how do I want to go? Mm. And what would 
be helpful from you who might be my care. There's a conversation of, you're not going to get it right because we, none of us know what will show up and how we will show up in that situation. But I think the thing that you've alluded to as well, Daphne, is that in our society, we just don't talk about this enough. Mm. It's real. It will happen. And if we can be in earlier conversations about, wow, what if we only have a year left don't just go to the bucket list. Yeah. Go to what needs to be in place if we only have a year left. And then we can do some bucket list things as well. So it's that kind of conversation that I think we're just not comfortable enough with. Yeah. And that's where I think we have this God complex that we think it's not going to happen. Yeah. That is such an important conversation, Marita, if we could all do that with our partners. And with family. Yeah. And again, like I said, I don't think we're going to get it right. But I just watch now with faith because of this serious car accident that she had now six years ago, whatever. And the tr uh, brain trauma that came with that. And that was a rehearsal for me with family, her family. And I had a better access point in terms of what to anticipate and expect from whom and how to dance with that. So I think, and, and it's, it's been hugely helpful. So I do think that there is something about, it's one of those conversations that nobody likes to be in, but make it part of your intentions yes. to go there. Yeah, that's yeah. a fantastic tip. I think mm. that's so important. I think that's so right. I think if we listen to any of the other podcasts, Katie, that you guys have done, just also if anybody listens to us here from a caregiver rehearsal or from sitting actually in the caregiver one, it would be useful to listen to those podcasts from the ear and the hat of caregiver when you listen to other cancer people. I hate to say patients, mm. uh, but people who have cancer and people who are like all of us will have to navigating a journey mm. at the moment. Listen to them yes. from that caregiver's perspective, uh, because it's different for everybody. So right. We, we all are in some way, shape or form in denial. And uh, this isn't just a conversation to have if, when cancer shows up, but just in life. And it's not just right relationship with our partners, it's with ourselves and this big topic of death. Yeah. It's so interesting, Katie, you begin to say thank you. It's so interesting how this one, unlike so many podcasts, it feels like it's ongoing. There isn't quite an end to the conversation because it's an incompletable <laughs> conversation. So thank you for sitting in the dialogue and noodling with this uh, Daphne, from our very different experiences that I just want to honor you and the third entity of you and Paul that remains in essence so present. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. And, you know, having, uh, knowing faith and you as well as I do, Marita, it feels so precious to actually learn from the way that you are navigating this. Yeah. And I have to say, you're one of the people that I had wanted to ping and there's a part of me that don't want to do it because I will just be in tears. <laughs> so, but you are somebody that I can do that with I know yeah exactly thank you both for letting me sit in on this conversation it's been a privilege and I want to thank you both but I also want to thank Faith and Paul they are a big part of this conversation too yes, yes. thank you thank you thank you Katie as always yeah, very precious conversation. And I feel really, really good for having had it, actually. It's sort of yes. felt like it's been an unspoken thing that's not quite the sort of audience that I can just go and chat about it to people. So it feels really lovely to be able to express some of these yeah. experiences. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Conversations on Cancer. 
We hope you're finding these talks as meaningful as we do. And because every individual is unique, we know that every cancer journey is different. These podcasts may or may not reflect your own experience. We encourage you to honor whatever your own journey is with illness in your life.